Back to the tour daily from Cycling Tips. I've done a little, a slight, slightly different version of that every single night. I think. Welcome back to the Tour Daily podcast. It's our daily cycling tips podcast from the Tour de France. I'm Kelly Fretz. I'm here with the mayor of Poddington, Johnny Long. Good day. And the Archbishop of Benterbury is back, Ian Trellor. No, that's wrong. That, that was Johnny's title. I was the king. No, see, I've reinvented myself a new title. Oh, so, to, I've, so I've become you, the clergy. Now was, yeah, now it's all on you. Yeah. Okay, that, that's fine. You're the I'm, church and I'm the state. In more ways than one. Well, aren't we going to keep battling until the end of the tour? There's, there is very little separation between me and Johnny at this point. So. <laughs> we sleep we sleep in single beds six inches away from each other. We share meals. It's very nice. He knows journeys, what to do when I start snoring. Content. We have reached stage 17 of this glorious Tour de France. One of the best tours in recent memory, I think. Even though today was, wow, we didn't get maybe quite as much actual change as we we're perhaps hoping for. We'll get into that in a little bit. Johnny, you sat down with Pippa York once again to sort of dive into the minutia of where the GC sits at the moment, some of the tactics and things like that. But as people can probably hear at the moment, we're in a very loud restaurant uh, in Tarb, sort of down out of the Pyrenees. We're here for two nights. We'll pop in for tomorrow's stage and then come back here. Can you set the scene for me? We walked through the, the streets of Tarb, not a soul in sight, because they are all sitting around us and they are enjoying drinks, eating dinner, all on outdoor patio areas. Behind us is a DJ in a Hawaiian shirt who looks as pretty much as generic a DJ as you are likely to get. Looks kind of like Dan Benson. He look, I think Dan Benson would be very happy with that. Um, I was about to suggest that the DJ, like a typical DJ, has an untrustworthy face. Um, and he, they're always up to something. He looks like an Arkea Samzix one year. He's, uh, he's like vibrating with the music as someone takes an Instagram video of him. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not convinced that he's not just pressed play on an iPod and is now just fiddling with things. So we do uh, apologize if it's a bit loud, but frankly, um, it's 10 o'clock at night and we are starving and we still have a podcast to make. Let's get into today's stage, stage 17. The stage winner, this is perhaps not exactly what he was hoping for at the start today, but a pretty darn good plan B. Stage is won by Tade Pogaccia at the top of the Paragude. The only thing that uh, was bad about Tade Pogaccia's stage win was that he finished on the same time as Jonas Vingago. He was probably imagining gapping him, wrestling back some time before tomorrow's how to come and the time trial. But yeah, it's, it didn't really kick off. It looked like it was going to get exciting when it, Brandon Minolti really whittled down the bunch and everyone was there like, whoa, Brandon. We've, we've, during this tour, we've, uh, thanks to our social to Mikey, we've really brought back in the car saying, damn Daniel, at random <laughs> intervals. But maybe we need to replace that with, whoa, Brandon. The other interesting thing today is, unlike yesterday when it was Pigacha that was isolated, today it was Vingegaard, Sepkus, who we were bragging flat out about yesterday, uh, didn't have the, the best of days. He said that he had a great day. 
Yeah, he did, today. didn't he? I, I thought he was maybe lying. I asked him this question. I said, well, you know, clearly today not as good as yesterday. Were you just feeling yesterday's efforts? And he was like, nah, I think today was great. I, I wouldn't say a great day is leaving I, your I mean, team leader isolated for two <laughs> Category oh, 1 basically climbs. Basically the stage, yeah, or the main bit of the stage. I mean, you know, I'm not going to hide my Sebkus fandom over here. He no, no, should you? He comes from where I live in the same very small town of Durango, Colorado, which is also where Quinn Simmons lives. Uh, and so I kind of have to be a fan. He was a ski racer with my wife back in the day, although I think he was like eight when she graduated from high school. Can't really hide the fandom, but I'm going to call bullshit on today being wow. a good day for Sepkus. Well, maybe it's a good day in the with respect to his team leader still being in yellow and not having cracked or anything. And uh, really, it didn't matter if Sepkus rode alongside him or not. The job still got done. And then who will probably be fresher tomorrow than Woe Brandon, who surely crawled into bed this evening after dropping the entire Tour de France peloton, apart from the two guys battling to win the bike race. I wanted to talk a little bit about... about Brandon McNulty and and what this ride maybe means for him going forward, but I believe I heard you talk about it with Pippa earlier. Yeah, yeah, we did so, touch on it, and she had some good insight. So we'll leave that for when we drop yeah. into that conversation. What else? What else struck you two today? I I think that for me at least, Pogaccia, despite winning the stage, didn't look all that strong. No. I mean, he won the stage and. I, I think that was impressive in itself, but we were kind of expecting multiple, multiple attacks. Uh, and on the way up to Perigord, there was this kind of sense of anticipation that he was just going to launch one of these insane accelerations and Fingergord would have to go after him. And that never really eventuated. McNulty basically paced them all up more or less to the top of the climb. So it was a, a little bit of an anticlimax in that respect based on, on what we probably were expecting to have happen. A little bit of a stalemate in the fight for the GC, which I suppose makes things all the more interesting for tomorrow. Our food has just arrived. Uh, we've got some, some uh, what is it? Chicken and beef. Escalope. No, yeah. No, this is the poitrine de poulet. De poulet. Uh, a le piece de bouffe. Where? A piece of boof. And yet more frites. And more frites. There we go. Should we perhaps take a pause and yep. drop over to you and Pippa? Especially because I can't remember the point I was midway through making, which probably <laughs> means it wasn't that exciting a point. So let's get to the real analysis from Pippa York. We are currently sat outside the press room at the bottom of Perigood. Kaylee Fretz and Ian Trelora currently writing away. Mikey's doing his social media. And myself and Pippa York are going to chat about the bike race. Or try to. What did, what did you make of today, Pippa? I mean, it, it threatened to kick off, but then... Norm normally this stage, you know, I, I would have um, targeted this because I would have reckoned uh, if any escape went on that, 60 odd kilometers before the first mountain I would be in it I'd have to be in it because you would take five minutes and then you would survive the GC battle that was bound to happen and normally that GC battle would happen probably on the you know the second of the calls out of the four to come but only near the top of it just to kind of thin it out a bit and then the real sort out for those guys would have taken place with one call to go 
and then the GC guys would have raced the last call. But it looked like somebody decided it was going to be a GC thing from the start. Um, and that changes everything, you know, not just for if you're trying to win the stage or do the climbers prize like um, Simon Geschko was doing. Uh, it changes for all the guys who can't climb. Then they're possibly in real trouble because it kicks off straight away, you know, three calls out and those guys are losing a minute every kilometer that, that it climbs. And then, you know, they're calculating how am I going to make the time count? And yeah, it was a GC day from the start. We saw Pagacha, despite losing Rafa Micah, very close to the start of the stage, which I uh, interpreted as they waited until the very last moment to keep the other teams guessing and be expecting Rafa Micah to, to be on the start line before he retired due to his thigh injury from the mechanical on yesterday's stage. Is that is that how UAE would have played it, to not give teams enough time to maybe come up with another plan? Yeah, they, they, you know, in the team Britain, the, 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 so for Jumbo, they would have you know, calculated possibly that Micah was going to start and maybe try and do the first call. And then if he was injured, just set up and go in the, the Gruppetto. But I don't think it really changed much to their plan of uh, how they were going to cope with the, the stage. Because obviously they just had to get Vingigo just to the bottom of the climb, the last climb with Pogaccio, and then if, see what happened. If, if Pogaccio was good enough to leave him, then Vingigo would just ride whatever speed he could, not blow, and just control the gap. You know, if he loses 30 seconds or maybe a minute, it's not catastrophic yet. So, you know, so that, that, that they would have just had basically one plan, you know, just try and stay with Vingigo as long as they can. I mean, today we saw Brandon McNulty really step up and fill those Rafa Micah-shaped shoes. Do you think maybe UAE were sort of keeping Brandon in reserve because they knew Micah could do it and then Brandon would be there in case they lost Micah? Yeah, we, you see this quite often. So when we saw it, we know when it used to be Sky who set the play, set the, the kind of tempo on, mm -hmm. the, on the mountains. The, the guys that they were going to use for specific days could take it easy the days before. Um, you know, so... In their case, you had somebody like Castro Viejo who would, you know, be in the Gruppetto for three days in a mm. row, and then the next day he'd he'd ride the whole of Tourmalet, you know, flat out. Yeah. Um, and that's what teams do. You know, they calculate using a certain type of rider on certain stages, and the other stages they can take it easy because then, if you're not riding the last hour flat, you know, totally flat out, but just to kind of make the time cut, you. If you come in 15 or 20 minutes behind, it doesn't matter because they're not, you know, riding a GC race. So they save them for, for specific things. And you, we've seen that, you know, since time immemorial. You, it's your job to do 10K of a climb and then you can swing over and, and the chaos that you've caused, you know, you, you're quite happy to do it. So I, I imagine McNulty will look at the chaos that he caused and be very happy with how that went. Sure, and we saw we saw Pagacha try a little dig quite close to the top of the the penultimate climb, and then on the next one it seemed like he didn't quite have it, and he was so. And I, I think what the feedback afterwards from UAT members was that they realised they weren't going to be able to drop Vingago, and so like right, let's just try and take four seconds on him in the sprint. Yeah, that was basically it. If, if Pagacha was going to try and drop Vingago, he would have done a you know a four k out. Mm. Uh, and then you're into that 12 to 15 minute effort where you can ride really hard um, and you might take 40 seconds, you might take a minute, you know, if the other guy just kind of rides, 
the, the speed that Geraint Thomas did. You know, it just stays to stays to what they can do. And if you're if you're good, you can kind of you know go above what you, your kind of threshold is. But he, obviously, the you know the little dig that uh, Pogaccio gave at the top of the the second last mountain. I think it was just to see if Vingigo was okay. But when you look at how they descended after it, and Vingigo descended better than, than mm. Pogaccio and McNulty, so even if Pogaccio had pressed on in the descent, it, it looked like Vingigo had had that under control as well. It looked like, it looked like he, he was totally within his limits, yeah. and the other two were kind of skirting around them. Yeah, I would have assumed that Pagaccia was because he seems like such an accomplished bike rider and all rounder. Mm. I would have thought he would have been. I thought maybe that was the plan to like push Vingo on the descent. But then there was there's especially there was one clip where it showed Vingo to take much better line and sort of yeah he was he was doing all the right handers a yeah. lot better than they were. And McNulty yeah. was leading men. You you could tell that he was on. You know he was at his limit. Mm. And because Pagaccia was second wheeling, following the lines that he'd been upset by the lines that McNulty was taking. That kind of messed up his whole idea, yeah. and Vingigo had enough sense, and kind of, um, you know, it was still within himself mm. that he was able to take the proper lines, and they, they, he just looked more comfortable. Which, when he, you know, when you're in that situation, you just think, well, these guys are trying, and I've still got a little bit of fear factor to go. And one of the more curious things after the sort of the, we didn't get a huge sort of GC fight was the Pogaccia celebration over the line when he sprinted. <laughs> is that is that just geeing everyone up for a final go tomorrow? What, what did you read into to that celebration? It was interesting, that, because he had to kill himself to do it. You know, see, <laughs> he was totally at his limit to do that sprint. And then, he, you know, he did the, the celebration on the line, and he's got that smile like it didn't cost him anything. Yeah. And you just think, he's either... He he understands that that's the picture that's going to be. You know, mm. the, the, it looks like he's 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 done that and he's been so strong that he's he's, he's totally within himself and it's it's part of the whole kind of entertainment thing. Or he's trying to play with Vingigo because Vingigo couldn't maybe see that he was you know yeah. absolutely murdering himself to win the stage. <laughs> but you know, fair dues. He he had a better sprint. Yeah, mm. but. I don't know if Vingigo would have been better to attack him, you know, 300 meters to go mm. if he could be, if he was able to. Or he, but in that situation, when you don't have to win and you just have to finish with the other person, you're not really that bothered about the stage win. Sometimes we like to see the yellow jersey really dominate the race and, you know, assert themselves with a show of strength that sort of makes everyone else back down and be like, okay, you are, you are the rider who will win the bike race. Do you, with Vingo, he'd, he'd look comfortable all day. Do you think he's maybe that's just not in his character or he's still learning the ropes of being in yellow? Yeah, it's probably the latter. He's, he's lear- he, he doesn't have to dominate Pogaccio. He just has to control him. Mm. And it's a bit like poking a bear, kind of. You know, it's like, how much do I upset him? And, he, and he'll throw himself at this. Because... I was thinking about this, you know, that if he if he'd went away on this on that descent before the last climb, he was probably worth. You're probably thinking it was worth it to fall off to see what happened, mm. you know. So, so he's got nothing really to lose. Yeah. So he could have thrown himself down the descent, and you know, if if he'd taken 15 seconds of Pogaccio, he he didn't really care. I I got that kind of feeling that he was more he was willing to risk more. Than, than Vingigo because Vingo's in the situation where he can control and also I, I don't think it's in his nature to mm. have that kind of same showmanship that Pogaccio has yeah. and the plan for tomorrow does 
Tale Pikachu have to wake up and hope that Jonas Vingegaard has had a terrible night's sleep. <laughs> His legs have stayed on this, the top of this mountain and not arrived at, with him for the stage start tomorrow. Is that all he can try or is there any... <sighs> it's, it's definitely another GC day tomorrow. Yeah. But just because of its, you know, three big mountains, no flat in between. It's just going to be a GC day and Jumbo are going to have to control it. Uh, and then McNulty's going to hit the front on the second mountain and blow it to pieces again. Yeah. Because that's what's, that's what's required of them. When he got rid of them all very quickly, because there were four Yumbo riders all there and it looked, looked everything looked uh, as it should be and proper, and then suddenly it suddenly was Vingegaard's Suddenly it, it all went pear-shaped <laughs> instantly. You know, you can... When you go above that, when you're sitting in that group and somebody rides so hard, you have to let go, otherwise you blow. Hmm. Um, and with the advent of... You know the power meter and the, and the the coaches can see what you can do and what you can't do. Like Gavin Thomas, he won't he won't blow. He'll just ride to what he can do. And a lot of the guys are starting to do that now. So they're not really racing other people. They're racing themselves almost. It's almost like every day turns into a time trial. Mm. And it, and it, it it tends to become that at the end of the tour that you're you don't have any big accelerations left. Mm. And if you can follow them. You know, you've only got a couple that you can play with. It's not like the first week where you've maybe got eight or ten to play with. You've got, time you get to the last week, you've got three or four at the mm. most if you're really good. Um, but you can ride all day at a same, a really strong pace. So you t you end up doing that, and we saw that today. The guys come in almost one by one, mm. and you rarely ever see that. Yeah. So that just shows you that, that it was been that was that finish was so steep, and what had happened with McNulty before had taken them all to the limit and they, they'd had to back off otherwise they were just toast. And and speaking of Garrett Thomas, he lost we well, finished two minutes behind the two riders ahead of him in the general classification, but he rode himself more into third place really mm. because the other guys behind. Do you think do you think for him he can sort of see like right, those two are on another level, so I've sort of won the secondary tour de France. Sort of like how, you know, in football there are the top six or whatever and no one has a chance of catching them and then there's a secondary competition. The playoffs for third and fourth. Exactly, you know, but like the race of the so everyone this, else. Yeah. I think he's been realistic. You know, he's always been that type of rider where where he, he he's almost, like I said, he's almost racing himself. He knows what his limits mm. are and he sticks to them and then the other guys like Bardet, you know, throw themselves at the horizon. Yeah. Um... <laughs> You know, in the hope that the other guys will blow, but you know, it's kind of come back to bite him a little bit. Whereas for mm. Geraint Thomas, he's stayed within himself. And of course, okay, so today he was he was in difficulty, but who wasn't mm. outside of the top two? So he definitely, you know, a podium place, and he would have signed up for that before the start. Whether Ineos would have signed up for that is a whole mm. other story. Yeah. Um, because all their other, you know, so so Adam Yates, the collapse of Adam Yates, they wouldn't have planned that. Mm. Um, Danny Martin, as you know, he'd have probably been the backup before yeah. Geraint Thomas, and that hasn't happened either. So they're going to go away from this and have to kind of recalibrate, you know, what their ambitions are, yeah, and, and what they do for their recruitment and, and how they they go forward from here if it's going to be a kind of pitcock thing with you know chasing stages and maybe the climbers prize so they 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 they're going to have to look at this you know from kind of pragmatically yeah
And one another rider you saw struggling, you were mentioning just before you hit record, was Fabio Jakobsen, who squeaked into the uh, into the t- inside the time limit so much so that his teammates actually left him because he obviously could only ride at a certain pace. And they're like, right, well, if you're going to miss it, I would kind of like to get to Paris on my bike after all of this effort. Yeah, that that's the thing is you know so they they'd be with him most of the day, and then he would say to them, look, guys, I'm not sure I'm going to make the, the yeah. time cut. Go ahead and, and make sure you guys get there. Um, but it was really nice to see them all waiting for him, you know, oh, and encourage really? him. So, yeah, he, you know, Fabio Jacobs, he didn't look healthy at the finish. Yeah. He was white. And uh, riders tend to look bad, you know, just after the finish. But I, I, I saw him a couple of minutes later, and the Swanier was pushing him up the hill towards the buses. And um, he still hadn't recovered. Yeah. Another competition, which you, I think you mentioned uh, at the start, was the King of the Mountains competition in Simon Geshka, who has a job on his hands tomorrow because he, I think I'll get the maths right, at the moment he's got 12 points over Vingago, uh, 18 over Pagaccia, and then Ciccone's 23 points back. So it's basically he has to race to the top of that first or category. Is that, that that's how he'll... His race will finish at the top of that. Tomorrow. His race finishes halfway through the stage. Yeah, he's not going to be part of the the fight on the last stage. No. Pogaccia is, Vingigo is. They're mm. going to take so it's a it's a or category with so then it's double points because it's a finish. Um, so yeah, he's in a difficult position, and it's the way that they've set up the the mountain classification is that the, the GC guys, just by being there on the on the finishes and there's double points, it kind of negates the whole effort that those the the guy the people who are. Cl- wearing the jersey now like Simon Geska um, they're struggling to gather points on all the other things just mm. to try to hold back Pogaccia and Pogaccia's you know, he's won the Climbers Prize for the last couple of years yeah. but he's not targeted it <laughs> he, he really hasn't and it's it been kind of oh that just and the same way when Chris Froome won it you know yeah. it wasn't a, a priority but you know if they can do it then they'll, they'll, they'll go and take a few points because they see it's available, mm. but it's not a in any way a priority for them, which means that um, the, the, they need a bit of tweaking on, on the the point system for that. Yeah, I was going to ask you because you obviously won it. You've you've won a you've won a polka dot jersey. How did, do you would you like to see it be tweaked to like sort of uh, before the Simon Geschkes rather than making Tade Pogaccia or Jonas Vingegaard get up on another podium in Paris? Would it be nicer to celebrate those guys who sort of toil? day in, day out, collecting points. But it changed a while ago to to be less points on, on the smaller mountains. Mm. So before, when you did a, a, a fourth cat climb, there was, I think there was the first three, and then a third cat was probably the first six or eight, and second cat was definitely ten, and then first cat was about first 15, and then our category was the first 25. And the, you got more points, mm. so you were encouraged to do more of the first cats and the or category ones. But you had to keep doing the second cats and and third cats. And if you wanted to wear the jersey from the first week, you were also doing sprints for the for the fourth cat climbs. So it, I think it needs a bit of tweaking. There's too much emphasis on the, just doubling the points on the finishes, mm. and that skews the whole competition for the people that want to target it from the very start. But speaking to Cedric Vasseur at the finish, he was obviously very keen on Gashka getting it tomorrow, partly because they're a French team, and that that's you know that would be the potentially the biggest win of the Tour for France is if their team, all but on a German rider, and the first German rider to do so would win the polka dots. Yeah, for for them, it's either they're on the podium every day. Everybody knows it's a covetous rider, 
it, it, to win a Tour de France classification on a French team is, is massive. It doesn't matter which one it is. It's a massive thing for them. Um, so I can understand they're frustra- they'll, they'll be slightly frustrated if the race doesn't split up enough and Gesche gets in the group that, that, that goes away. And they might, you know, suggest to UAE that they, you know, if if they need a hand later on in a race, you know, they, they let Gesche take the, the climber's prize and then we, if something happens, you know, that there's a coffee's guy from the front, they'll ride a little bit or whatever, they'll help him out. But that would be, you know, a conspiracy theory too far. <laughs> that's fine. We've That's probably the most sane conspiracy theory we've heard so far on this podcast, given me Ian and Ronan have been at it at times this tour. Was there anything else than on today's stage or over the past days or that you expect tomorrow that maybe we haven't we haven't seen that you've picked up and been like, that's that's an interesting thing that... I think the, the demise of Jumbo so quickly. Yeah. That was surprising. That they all kind of got blown out straight away as soon as McNulty hit the front. That that was surprising, uh, and it might have been in their interest just to let the break go on the flat, just so they had two, three guys in the front with you know four or five minutes, and and you know, that would have given them that kind of safety margin. But since they lost the two best climbers, yeah. the two best kind of support riders, um, they're in a difficult position, and UAE kind of took advantage of it. Hmm. There we go. Well, well, thank you very much, Pippa. Um, another day closer to Paris. Are you, are you ready to, to get to Paris and, and off this bike race? I've got my plane ticket already booked. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, it's been really nice. Um, it's quite strange finishing the tour because there's, there's a kind of, well, I wish it went on a bit longer, but you you know, there's days where you wake up and you just wish it was over. <laughs> um, and the riders feel exactly the same. You know, you get... The, in the Pyrenees as a rider, you're thinking, right, what's after this? The last mountain stage, okay, what do I got to do? Am I surviving or am I competing? And then the next days after that are just, oh, let's, can I, you know, can I see signs on the motorway for Paris? Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and that's all you're thinking. Then you get to Paris and you think, whoa, it's over. Oh. Very good. Well, I'm sure we'll catch up with you, if not tomorrow, in, in the coming days on our way to Paris. Thanks. Something I didn't hear you mention today, although I didn't hear the entire conversation, I apologize. We were, as I said, at the top of the the final climb, Paragood today. We were at the scene of a crime today. And that crime was Bradley Wiggins winning a Tour de France. Because if you will remember, the Paragood was the location at which Chris Froome waited and waited and waited patiently for Bradley Wiggins to get himself up that mountain in 2012. And as a result, Bradley Wiggins won the Tour de France. Now I'm being slightly facetious here because actually I remember at the time doing, kind of doing the math and based off of time trial performance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, Wiggins probably would have won that tour anyway. But this was the day, essentially, this, that climb in 2012 was the day when we sort of realized or, or, I guess, yeah, we realized, maybe if he didn't, that Chris Froome was a potential tour winner. Can I try and top you in facetiousness? Yeah. Just to, yeah, make yours less. Um, That was the time when Chris Froome was the most British he's ever been on account of how patiently he waited and waited and waited. (laughs) And when he did that, it's like, this is, this is a guy, this is, this is our guy. Is that, is that the day that you decided he wasn't Kenyan and he could be English instead? (laughs) 
I don't, yeah, I mean, I don't decide these things, but that was when you're like, well, you know, he's got, I think his grandparents here are British or parents here are British. And that was then it's like, yep, yep, you are, you're one of us. <laughs> Just patiently waiting. It was a really fascinating day that day because, I mean, Wiggins had been relatively dominant up until that moment. And there was this really strange situation at the top where we all watched what happened. We all watched Chris Froome wait and then we were kind of gaslit into, into, we were basically told that that didn't happen at the top. Oh, what, at the top by the yeah. by Brailsford and like Brailsford and and everybody, Froome and Thomas and everyone was like, no, 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 no. And I remember my colleague at the time, Matt Bowden, who's now a press officer at EF, I think wrote this story, or maybe I wrote the story. I can't remember. This is ten years ago. One of us wrote this story that you know that Froome had waited and that this was a big deal and that this is like the guy that was going to win the Tour de France, maybe shouldn't have won the Tour de France if Froome had been let go from the from the start. Uh, and there was definitely sort of this British angle to it because even though you're talking about Froome, okay, we finally accepted him as English, Wiggins was the most English man I've ever met in my entire life. And so there was a, there was a need for Sky at the time to get him into yellow in Paris. Oh, yeah. And that it felt like that tour, it felt like a bit faked. Like they had just sort of picked the guy that they wanted to win. And this is, again, this is sort of like right at the start of, near the start of, of Sky dominance for years and years and years and years. It was a strange situation at the top. Uh, and I think that a lot of the non-English, non, I shouldn't say English, not English language, non-British media kind of rejected the narrative that day uh, and never fully recovered from it. And it maybe was part of why there was so much animosity for the next six years or so. It's because we were we were essentially lied to quite early. I'm trying to see exactly where Froome finished there, but I knew I know he moved up in the GC again, and he's sort of improving. And he came across the line here. Uh, I've got a video of it actually. I need to give it to Mikey. He rode across the line accompanied by his press officer and sort of closed one nostril with his finger and shot out a massive booger, as I imagine, as I think the Americans say. I would refer to it as a bogey, but I'm. I'm being assimilated into all things American. And yeah, oh, he finished 40, uh, 40th, 18 minutes down, which isn't He was going so for bad. breakaways and things, though. Yeah, he, he had yeah. a little 500 meter spell off the front attacking, but. Uh, Not too bad. I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's here, he's doing the bike race. It was weird because he, he rode past uh, Sepp Kusen and Jumbo Visma bus with all the press crowd around, and Froome just sort of snaked past without anyone really realizing. And I mean, it's because he's kept, he like, sort of like. The media access to him is maybe he keeps at a distance because like what else am I going to say? But yeah, it's an interesting I've way actually, to see him. Then I've been I've been bouncing around a story on that front of just sort of like the you know the forgotten heroes angle basically because we you can just watch the press in the paddock at the end of the day near the buses and and we essentially we we all crowd around the stories of the day right so. We crowd around UAE, we crowd around Yumbo, we crowd around Sepp Kuss and Pogaccia and director sportifs from both of those teams. And meanwhile, behind us, Chris Froome slides by without anybody noticing and Peter Sagan slides by without anybody noticing. And it's just such a wild turnaround from essentially like pre-pandemic. And I think that's what that what's kind of exacerbates it is that like for me, when I think back, just oh, what, what was a couple of years ago at the Tour de France? I'm actually thinking about like 17, 18, 19, like pre-pandemic time, because it was this weird like gap in my tour memory. I skipped one tour, 
and then the tours after that were weird and kind of until this year. Because of that little gap, these riders that were a huge deal in 2017, I still find it kind of jarring that I have that I don't need to go talk to Peter Sagan every day. Yeah, and I don't need to go talk gonna, to Bruce Stroom every day. Yeah. yeah, it's just it feels very strange. I feel uh, there's there's a story in there somewhere that I might try to pull together before the end of the race. Peter Sagan was one of at least four riders I saw because the, the the buses were on another little hill up from the finish line, and him and a teammate were holding onto the motorbike going past getting left. Roman Bardet was another one, and there's an EF rider who I imagine was either Nielsen Paulus or Alberto Betiel, because I saw I think it was other Betiel. EF riders. Was it him? I saw Paulus roll up with, um, who's he with? <laughs> it's, I'm tired. I'm just seeing your <laughs> brain break in real time. The other thing I was going to say about uh, Betiel, did you see at the start of the stage when he had a little bit of an argy-bargy with um, our, our man, uh, Joe Dombrowski? Joe Dombrowski was trying to like get up, like a tackle. Get they had. Well, they Joe's had a, not going to win that. They had a, yeah. They had a little um, like conversation or whatever. Betty was remonstrating with him, and then Joe Dombrowski tried to sneak up the outside, like next to the barrier, to maybe go in the breakaway or something. And Betty sort of moved over and blocked him. I don't think. I think I was just spite of the conversation. I don't know, but it's Alberto Betty was having a an interesting tour. He's getting getting <laughs> in amongst it, as you'd say. I wonder if uh, was Rigo already in the break, and they were just essentially trying to keep uh, okay. trying to keep good climbers out of the break at that point. Maybe, possibly. But yeah, he's been. Uh, what you'd say in, in in football is that he's been in the mixer this tour. Ah, he's yes. been in the mixer. He has been. I have a. Um, I have a small anecdote. Oh, yes, because we, okay, a bit of a behind the scenes. If someone's about to say something interesting in the drive after the stage until we get to the restaurant, we're going to record the podcast. If it sounds something that could be useful for this, you're like, ah, save it for the podcast. Save it. Save it for the podcast. Because, you know, we, we're not particularly good actors. And no, so that's what I said to you. I was like, I need to hear this real time exactly. so I can actually react. So now you've built it up probably beyond what it should actually be sorry but you know we, we asked we asked a couple we asked a couple days ago for people to yell our respective greetings at us yeah. here at this race i have heard some boy howdies out of the back of my ear have you have you heard have you guys heard anything ian no no i i haven't and then i also tried to uh run a, i tom pickock came past and he's run a good race you know wanted to chat to him and i said i said tom could i do it could we do a run and talk and he just completely looked forward, which is fair enough, because he's on a hard mountain stage. But then that was when I thought, maybe he just, maybe doesn't listen to the podcast or, or care about us at all, which obviously he doesn't. But when you get this way far through the tour, weird things are happening in your brain. So I rode, I went for a quick ride today. We got to the press room quite early. The, the stage started quite late and was kind of short. And so I did the math when we arrived at the press room, and I realized that I had about an hour. Got on my bike, went up, I went up the... Last descent. What was what? Uh, uh, As a, I think it was. Yeah, it was. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, a bunch of switchbacks went up that descent, and about a th maybe 500 meters, 750 meters from my turnaround point, which is where they told me I had to get off and walk. I heard distinctly from the mountainside. Chubs out. Yes! <laughs> yes, we are moving the needle in the, the weirdest way possible. Yep, just a big old Chebs out scream <laughs> from the mountainside. <laughs> and I can only assume that that was for me because I don't know what it 
would be for otherwise. My N chebs weren't out. No. I should, well, you should clarify. No, 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 no. Oh, were they? They kind of. I, my jersey Your was jersey unzipped. My chebs oh. were out. So it made sense, and it was a callback to our, our podcasting. So I don't know who that was, but if it was you, let us know. Yeah. That you that you were this magical person at the top of the Col uh with your chebs out yelling. Like I, I think if you're if you're walking or sorry riding around with your nipples out, it's kind of diluting the statistical efficacy of this experiment. You need to <laughs> you need to either be completely chebs out and it's intentional, like we have been for much of the last yeah, three days or so. Yeah, we had a weird couple days there. <laughs> <laughs> there was a very topless tour, of the, topless tour of the tips. Um, but if you're if you're kind of blurring the lines like that, then I, I don't think we can rely on the data necessarily. Are you saying that... Are you a, are you I a have never, out truther? <laughs> I have never... Listen, I ride... I, I ride warm. Like, I unzip my jersey Congratulations. a lot Congratulations. <laughs> We've all got stuff going on, Kaylee. <laughs> I unzip my jersey when I'm climbing quite a lot, and so the chebs are out frequently. And not once in my entire cycling life, since I was 11 years old or whatever, has anybody yelled chebs out at me. But you're probably not normally on a, a daily ride in Colorado riding up a hill full of spectators. So all, you, all it takes is one rogue Scotsman yeah. to, to know that uh, your nipples are your chebs or something. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, well, that is a good counterpoint, but um, yeah, no, I mean, Ian, for you, has it been the same? Like no, over like social media and the Velo Club, all the people have spoken to me about for maybe the past four or five days are chebs. There's there's been a, a real sense of traction for the cheb. Yeah. Of and all I, the I, things I, we're trying to do at the tour, the one thing that's caught on is chebs. I, I we are. Let's be very clear. Are we a chebs podcast now? Journalists. Oh right, that too. Yeah. We are capital J journalists here. Yeah. We do journalism, we talk to people, we find things out, we bring this information to our audience, but also we are the mayor of Pottington yeah. and the Archbishop of Banterbury. I'm still not okay with my change in ranking. Ian, speaking of the Capital J journalism, your, your, the recent headline of your most recent article is possibly one of my favorite of the tour so far. I, I think we've uh, we've gone a little bit, we've, we've started pushing the boundary with our headlines and I think that reflects well in the page views, mostly because people are probably looking at them going, what are these guys on? Um, <laughs> so I can't remember the exact wording now. It was like, Garen Thomas wants to... Wants what they're having for breakfast. <laughs> wants what they're having for breakfast, along with such other classic headlines of the past, like Thomas Pitcock forgot his sunscreen this morning. Uh, <laughs> Gillian Martin is recovering among his donkeys. <laughs> I like that they're all just very bland statements that are so far from the traditional headline that you're like, what? Like, that's not a sentence that would normally catch your eye. It is a sentence unless that would normally a, catch my unless eye. Unless it's a headline, because it's so unheadline-like that it works. It's gone, it's, made, it's gone full circle on us. Eventually, we will eat ourselves. Probably. Yeah. Speaking of eating... Well... Speaking of eating, but very quickly, do we want a very, very rapid mon uh, Mayo Sable update? It's a very quick one because it is the same man in the jersey. He's kept it on his shoulders and he deserves it after the ride today. It's only Woa Brandon, Mr. McNulty's. <laughs> He's a truly, well, now we know why he oh. rode like that today. 
He wants that thing in Paris. We did try and speak it to him after the stage, but he just took so long and we had to well, get got, a cable got, car down. He got the most combative today. Yeah. So he was he was up on the podium, and that means that we have to wait for him even longer, and then we eventually we gave up. Here's another bit of uh, English slang or lexicon. You could say that Brandon McNulty today was doing bits. Doing bits. Yeah. You might have come across that in, in your Premier League football fandom. Uh, if you're doing bits, you're just like... You're killing it. That you're makes no sense at all. <laughs> the no more I learn about England from you, way. Johnny, <laughs> the more I learn, doing the less bits. I like. Doing bits. Yeah. So you, like, bits are small, though. Like, he did, he did a big bit. Yeah, but you're still doing bits. You're doing bits. It's different I wish you could see Johnny's hand motions right now. <laughs> As if that was helping the understanding. This is worse way. than there's a bit of meat in it or something uh, from yesterday. <laughs> but, yeah, weirdly, it's the same word. Bit of me doing bits. Doing bits. Are they, are they like did from the today. same thing? Yeah. Uh, no, I think doing bits is more of a football uh, right. word. So, he, so McNulty phrase. was doing bits today. Yeah, and he's kept the most sable and got most combative on the stage, so... He's who, now one, one hour who is imme- immediately threatening to him on the, on the Sabla? Damiano Caruso, but he's seven minutes behind. So he's looking good. He's looking good. He could, uh, it looks very he good. could do that. Speaking Unless we have of, someone uh, full. Oh, sorry. Oh, they, they, they've made oh. the fire under our thing now. Our meat is about to be <laughs> heated. Let's, before we wrap up for today, let's pop over to Jose Ben. According to the text message that I got from her today, today we speak about the regional language and the first Dutch yellow jersey who only got to enjoy that for one day. Let's listen. We still race through the old region of Occitanie, which you may from may know from the stage race Route d'Occitanie. You will spot the red flags with the Occitan cross immediately on the side of the road. The region is more of a cultural and language entity than a political one. The Occitan language used to be called a patois dialect, and in French this has a negative connotation of inferior language. The French suppressed Occitan to confirm its hegemony of the French language. France only has one official language, so there isn't official government documentation in Occitan or Breton or Basque, for example. The total number of speakers, mainly elderly people, comes to about 600,000. Efforts are being made to revive the language, and this is done by encouraging parents to raise their children bilingually, and if they do not speak the language themselves, the grandparents. Today, we race from Lourdes to Otakam over the Col d'Aubisque, and there is another great cycling story to be told here. In 1951, the Netherlands celebrated their very first yellow jersey wearer. His name was Wim van Est. He came into cycling quite late because of the Second World War that started when he was 17 years old. During this war, from 1940 to 45, Van Est smuggled butter and tobacco from Belgium, just across the border from where he lived in the south of the Netherlands. He did so by bike, but one day he apparently wasn't fast enough and got caught by the Germans. Van Est then spent six months in prison. In 1946, when he was 23 years old, he started racing as an amateur. The smuggling through the fields and the sand made him strong, and he was successful instantly. In 1951, he lined up for his very first Tour de France and won the 12th stage in Dax. He was part of a breakaway of 10 riders, which had 18 minutes on the peloton with yellow jersey Roger Lévesque. 
Van Est wore the jersey only one day because the day after, the 13th stage of that Tour de France, the peloton climbed the Col d'Aubisque, and that's where a very famous piece of Dutch cycling history was written. Van Est had never seen mountains as high as the Pyrenees. After climbing the Obisque, Van Est wanted to stay with the Italian Filippo Magni, but the first corner of the descent, the Dutchman crashed. He had never seen mountains this high, let alone descent safely. His training roads in the south of the Netherlands were flat as a pancake, and back then there were no altitude camps. Van Est literally had never done this before and might have been a little bit reckless, his grandson recounted a few years ago. Van Est fell 70 meters deep into the ravine. Belgian rider Rocher de Kok, who was right behind him, saw him go over a small wall and down the mountain. He immediately stopped traffic, but looking down the mountain, they did not see him, until Wim van Est waved. With bicycle tyres tied together and relatively okay, he was pulled back up. He left the Tour de France that same day, but became famous with an advertisement where his team sponsor, watch brand Pontiac, made him say, I dropped 70 meters into a ravine. My heart stopped, but my Pontiac did not. Vanessa rode until he was 42 years old and also became the first Dutch rider to win a stage in the Giro and wear the pink jersey. And he was also the first Dutch rider to win the Tour of Flanders. That woolen yellow jersey, including all of the holes from the crash, is still on display, as is Vanessa's mangled bike. And of course, that famous Pontiac watch. And apparently... It's still working. There's now a plaque on the obisque that was revealed in 2001, 50 years after the crash, and Van Est himself was in France to reveal it. He died two years later in 2003, aged 80. Thanks to Jose for putting that one together. Only a couple more of these, these stages. You're gonna learn so many things in the next couple days. Ian, you had a bit of a moment today. I actually, I completely missed this. I was over in the shade watching the race on my phone, trying to figure out what was going on, and apparently you two were on the struggle bus. I, I no, think no, mere, I wasn't. I was, feet I, away. I, was just, I was watching over Ian. Okay. I think everybody has a bad day on the tour. Today, allegedly, might have been Sip Koos, even if he denies it. I'm not, I'm not going to pull a Koos. I'm going to be upfront with you. I, I, was, I was having a bit of a mare today. I, we... I don't know, like it, it varies between being a bad day and a good day because we got on a gondola and we rode a gondola up to the top of a mountain and that was very pretty and the uh, press room buffet was quite nice. Um, and the we, we haven't done buffet ratings this, this tour because we got yelled at for doing it's it. It's dangerous to that, yeah. Like That's ASO the first thing actually, I learned. ASO came to us and was like, hey, if you do this, the cities get sad. <laughs> they and complain. Please stop. Well, so I would we, say that we can't do them anymore. Which today is, which is today a was a good one. Um, and then we got on a gondola and we went up to the top of a mountain. And then uh, I was expecting it to be much cooler up there. So I'd put on pants for the first time in about four days. And I couldn't find a spot in the shade. And I was just lying in a ditch. <laughs> outside the UAE Team Emirates bus because they've got a TV. We were all sitting in a ditch, but I'd arrived slightly later at the, the shady spot. So I was in the direct sunlight and I uh, drifted off for a little bit there to a happier place. And uh, yeah, I, it, was, it was not a good day. And then, 
and then I, I sort of exiled myself back down the mountain, which was beautiful. Like gondolas, I got to see the uh, worst riders of this year's Tour de France climbing up the mountain long after everyone else had finished. And when I got down to the bottom, I realized that the car key, which had access to the computer, which I needed to write my article for the day, was up the top of the mountain. So I, uh, I sat and wrote things in a little book. What was great is we, we got back down the mountain and then by the car, just underneath the tree, was Ian's bag and an open notebook full of his writing. So even though Ian wasn't there and his belongings were, it was like the beginning of an Ian Trelaw story, um, which I might now tweet, tweet now so that I hopefully get three likes instead of thinking I've come up with that before the podcast. Our... Uh Oh, Our wow. DJ is playing air guitar. He is um, he's riffing on a in a real guitar. Way. Yeah, he has a real guitar, but he's playing air guitar on it. And also, the the man that was taking pictures of them before has been taking pictures of him throughout. So there's some. There, I, I don't know if it's like a personal photographer or something, but for the entire time we've been sitting here, the same man has been taking pictures of. Previously, there was a female singer with the um, with the guitarist slash DJ. He was taking pictures of her, and I thought it was just a just a creep, but uh, he still may be a creep. Probably, probably well would be. But we, we, we also met another local on our walk to this restaurant who was sort of telling us a bit about Tarb, not much, apart from the fact that we absolutely had to go to the Shamrock, which he was very surprised when we guessed that it was an Irish pub, and he was like, how did you know that? And it's like, well, you're kind of playing, they're playing to type, aren't they? There were about three or four uh, points during the conversation, which wasn't very long, where he just, he was just like, Yes, you go here, and this is where the uh, this is like a, a nice place where people used to go, but everybody else goes to the Shamrock. And then we were like, "Oh, is it loud?" And he's like, "Yes, people go to the Shamrock, and the food's good, the drinks are good." I imagine if we looked it up on Google reviews, it would be uh, yeah. Okay, let's look up the Shamrock yeah, tub. I want to compare it to and the I would like Google reviews of the bridge, which then people were saying, well, if, if you wouldn't drive over it, why would you sit underneath the bridge? And to that, I would say, I, I don't necessarily doubt the Romans or medievals or whatever era we decided that bridge was from. I, I think that they are very capable at building a bridge, but I don't think whenever it was built, they had like uh, semi-trailers. <laughs> So I, I don't think... I, it's fundamentally just an issue of whether they designed the bridge for a, a modern load. It, it, so the Shamrock gets a 4.4 out of that 5. That is not bad. That's pretty good. For an Irish pub in France. However, yeah. if I sort reviews by lowest first, which Thank is you, what you're we always learning do. quickly. We are aren't we? Uh, the servers are more than rude. Among other things, they put your fingers... Their fingers in your glasses before serving. It would be it'd be a lot worse if they put your fingers in your glasses before <laughs> serving. Put your hand up and pop it in. Um, that is, yeah, that's a weird way to serve a drink at a bar. I should say that these are all translated out of French by Google, so they don't make a ton of sense. I think that first one gave the vibe quite accurately. Extreme aquatic experience. <laughs> is it an underwater bar? Apparently, it only serves water at the table. Ah, this is ah, it's a bit of it's a bit of a joke. Extreme aquatic experience. Apparently, it only serves water at the table, but only on the knees. <laughs> someone, oh, I'm gonna get the, someone was um, funny that day. The French doesn't really make a whole lot more sense than that, unfortunately. This is the beauty anyway, of anyway. The Shamrock reviews. sounds like we're headed next. Yeah. 
Sure. Well, we think. I mean, the guy. The guy that. Do we get his name? That that was no, I, I specifically thought, not. I yeah. Says sort of. Uh, we oh, we think we think he probably works there. Mikey's perked up. Mikey has perked up. <laughs> Mikey is now stoked. Mikey is ready Shamrock. for a night out. I've never seen a man more ready for a night out. <laughs> he also managed to buy at the petrol station earlier today a hat, a nice bucket hat that perfectly matches his outfit, which I don't think anyone has ever done before in the history of French service stations. The one thing I want to say is. You guys left me on the mountain today. Oh, no, we nearly no, left on the mountain. We, we would have remembered before we got on the gondola. Yeah. No, we wouldn't have. No, we would. We would have gotten thinking. to the bottom and said, where's Mikey? And then we would have realized that you're still on the mountain. <laughs> I was at the meeting spot that was decided, we which did, no one we, met we at. We set a meeting spot and a meeting time, and then Johnny and I proceeded to ignore both of those things and just start leaving. It was a, it was a learning moment. And yeah. I was already down the bottom, just sitting under yeah. a tree writing in my book. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we brought you with. Yeah, and we it was, found it, you. It, it went fine. And we got the gondola down with a man who really didn't like the idea of being on a gondola. Oh, we yeah. The guy in the gondola with us was very afraid of heights. Yeah. Was, <laughs> it was wearing great. It was great. <laughs> it was so good. Was wearing a Boston Red Sox hat. And so as a former inhabitant of Boston, I was like, Boston Red Sox hat. Do you like the Boston Red Sox? In French and everything. And he just stared between his knees and groaned. <laughs> it was so good. It was so good. <laughs> And with that, I think it's time for us to wrap up for the day. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Thank you, Mayor of Pods, Bill. Pot Poddington? Poddington. We'll come up with something else tomorrow so it doesn't have to be remembered. And to the Archbishop of Benterbury, Ian, thank you very much for joining us. <laughs> we will be back tomorrow from the last mountain stage of the Tour de France on the Horakam. It will be fantastic, and we can't wait. We'll see you then. <laughs>